President Trump attacks Al Sharpton, so Democrats rush to his defense. The media continue to push the Trump is racist narrative, and we preview the Democratic debates tonight. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. I'm sorry for the late start, guys, but as it turns out, when you run an internet company, one of the things that you need is internet. We did not have that, but finally we have achieved connection, and now we begin. Okay, so the big story of today is the continuing fight between President Trump and Pretty much everybody, I think it's fair to say at this point, President Trump was at war with Elijah Cummings. You'll recall that over the weekend, the president went after the city of Baltimore. He said that it was rat infested. He said that it was a terrible place to live. All of that is kind of true. And everybody went nuts. Oh, this was obviously racist. How could the president rip into Elijah Cummings? How could the president rip into Baltimore? And then people were like, oh, yeah, it's Baltimore. And that city is not well run. And there were riots there like four years ago. And it has some of the highest crime rates in America. And it has tremendous pockets of poverty and people living in absolute penury and rundown conditions. People who are trying to splice in their home water to fire hydrants just so that they can live in these derelict houses. So kind of Trump's not wrong, is he? And then the media's like, no, 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 pay no attention to that. Racist. Racist to criticize Baltimore. Racist to point out that Baltimore is not a great place to live. It doesn't matter that Trump has said before that New Hampshire was a drug-infested den. If he used the word infestation, that means he was referring to black and brown people. And when he said that no people want to live there, he didn't mean that people are actively moving out and that as of the last census, Baltimore had lost population as it has been doing for decades. No, what he meant was that everyone who lives there is not a human being. And the media painted this ridiculous narrative. Okay, so then the president decided to open up his guns on another front. He decided to go after Al Sharpton. So... Today, the president tweeted out, or yesterday, he tweeted out, quote, I've known Al for 25 years. This is all because Al Sharpton decided to go to Baltimore because this is what Al Sharpton does. Al Sharpton is basically a We the People concert at halftime of the Super Bowl in 1987. Basically just parachutes right into the center of a controversy. And then he stands there and goes, give me money. Right? That is Al Sharpton's routine. He has done it for years. Okay, so Donald Trump tweeted out, I have known Al for 25 years. Went to fights with him and Don King. Always got along well. He loved Trump. He would ask me for favors often. Al is a con man, a troublemaker, always looking for a score. <laughs> There's something hilarious about the fact that President Trump does not see the contradiction between the first half of his statement and the other half. It's like, we were best friends. Also, he's a piece of crap and always has been. But <laughs> he continues, just doing his thing. Must have intimidated Comcast NBC, hates whites and cops. And now... It is fair to say that Al Sharpton is a con man, a troublemaker, always looking for a score. That is exactly what Al Sharpton is. Al Sharpton is the worst. Al Sharpton is a pile of race baiting garbage. He has been since he jumped onto the national scene. How bad is Al Sharpton? Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is no right winger, once wrote in his diary, quote, Al Sharpton has done more damage to the black cause than George Wallace. He has suffocated the decent black leaders in New York. His transparent venal blackmail and extortion schemes taint all black leadership. RFK Jr. called Sharpton a buffoon who gave him the creeps. And then because Sharpton was given all sorts of media attention, then RFK Jr. backed down when the diary became public. Then he called him an extraordinary national leader over the past decade, which is the way that all of this works, always. This always works where, where you criticize people correctly, and then the media go crazy, and then you back down. Well, Trump is not one for backing down on all of this. The reason that Sharpton ended up with a primetime spot on MSNBC, if you go back, is that in 2011, MSNBC president Phil Griffin decided to hire Sharpton after Sharpton got into a spat with Young Turks host Cenk Iger, who used to have a show 
on MSNBC. And Iger accused Griffin of kowtowing to the White House. Right. And, and then Griffin touted Sharpton. He said, I've known Reverend Sharpton for over a decade. I have tremendous respect for him. He's always been one of our most thoughtful and entertaining guests. I'm thrilled. He's now reached a point in his career where he's able to devote himself to hosting a nightly show. His show has never gotten anything close to good ratings. In a second, I want to talk about exactly how Al Sharpton was revitalized in the American public eye, because he was basically out of the American public eye for a couple of decades there because everybody knew what a con man he was. And then he was restored to a point of glory by none other than Barack Obama. We'll get to that in just a second. But first, President Trump, he tweeted out, if the Democrats are going to defend the radical left squad and King Elijah's Baltimore fail, it will be a long road to 2020. I'm not sure where he's getting the King Elijah stuff. I guess that's his new nickname for Elijah Cummings, who, by the way, is pretty well respected on both sides of the aisle as somebody who at least treats Republicans with some modicum of decency. Trump tweeted, if the Democrats are going to defend the radical left squad and King Elijah's Baltimore fail, it will be a long road to 2020. The good news for Dems is that they have the fake news media in their pocket. Okay, fact check true on everything except for the King Elijah thing. Everything else true. President Trump has a gift. His gift is that no matter what he does, Democrats will oppose it. As I said yesterday on the show, I have a three-year-old. My three-year-old refuses to eat. The way that I get him to eat is by saying to him, do not eat that. Donald Trump basically does that by just saying that he doesn't like some things. He'll be like, cancer, it's the worst. I hate cancer. I've been fighting against cancer my whole life. And Democrats will be like, cancer? How could you fight against cancer? Why would you fight against cancer? Cancer is the best. Pancreatic stage four cancer is the greatest. Whatever Trump attacks, Democrats decide to defend. And so now they are defending, now they are defending Al Sharpton. The New York Times headlines all of this this way. Trump widens war on black critics while embracing, quote, inner city pastors. So obviously this is a racial thing. It's not just that Trump doesn't like Al Sharpton and doesn't like Elijah Cummings. And this morning, by the way, attacked Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough, went after them brutally. He says, just reminded my staff that Morning Joe and Psycho, this is his nickname for Mika Brzezinski, which is just delightful that the president of the United States just calls people Psycho. Just reminded my staff that Morning Joe and Psycho were with me in my room at their request the night I won New Hampshire. Likewise, followed me to other states. Don't watch show, but heard Mika say I asked to preside over the marriage. Not true. Does anyone really believe that? They were married by Elijah, king of Baltimore. <laughs> what the hell? Okay, but last I checked, Mika Brzezinski, pretty white. Joe Scarborough, pretty white. So I'm pretty sure that is not, in fact, a racial attack. Nonetheless, the New York Times says it's all about race. Peter Baker and Maggie Haberman reporting, quote, President Trump widened his war on critics of color on Monday with new attacks on Reverend Al Sharpton. Okay, now, why is it that it's always critics of color? Why doesn't, how about just critics? He attacked Nancy Pelosi yesterday. He attacked Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski, who are both white today. But apparently Trump only attacked black people. I mean, you'll, you'll have to forgive every other Republican candidate in 2016 for thinking differently. I'm old enough to remember when Donald Trump was attacking, you know, every single person he didn't like because I'm older than one minute ago. But according to the New York Times, it's all about the color. Look at that objective news coverage right there from the New York Times. Just spectacular objective news coverage from the New York Times. We get to more of that spectacular objective journalisming. New York Times journalisming everywhere, getting their journalism everywhere. We'll get to that in one second. First, it is very difficult to find sunglasses that are quality and that last a while and they don't break right off and that don't cost you a fortune. And one of the big problems with sunglasses is that you'll buy a pair that's really expensive and then either it does break pretty easily or you lose it and you just spent a fortune on sunglasses that are gone. Well, I have a solution for you. Movement sunglasses. So as you know, I have several movement watches and they're terrific, right? I mean, they're minimalist. They're good looking. They're really durable. I really like my movement watches. I, my, my entire family has them. My wife 
now has movement sunglasses. I have two pairs of movement sunglasses. They have a lot of cool looks. They've got some classic looks, like 1950s style sunglasses. They've got the aviators. They've got what you're looking for. I wear movement sunglasses because they do hit that sweet spot of style, quality, and affordability. Movement sunglasses start at 60 bucks. No pair prices over 95 bucks. So you're guaranteed to find a style you love with quality that's not going to break the bank. They've sold over 2.5 million products across more than 160 countries. Their collections are always expanding. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com slash Shapiro. See why the movement keeps growing. That's mvmt.com slash Shapiro. Join the movement right now. mvmt.com slash Shapiro. I love all their products. You will too. Really quality and it ain't going to cost you a fortune mvmt.com slash Shapiro. Okay, so according to the New York Times, it's all about race, of course, of course. It's not just that President Trump is thin-skinned and a bully and attacks anybody who he doesn't like. No, it is that President Trump is a vicious, brutal racist. Always, always. And then they wonder why people on the right don't take them seriously every time they scream racist. Because this is the boy who cried racist. You keep calling racist, eventually when the wolf shows up, nobody's gonna believe you anymore. But according to the New York Times, in a third straight day of broadsides against black figures, Mr. Trump denounced Mr. Sharpton on Twitter as a con man who hates whites and cops and again assailed Representative Elijah Cummings in his Baltimore-based district, drawing rebukes from Maryland Republicans as well as Democrats. Mr. Trump's determination to intensify the furor rather than move on guaranteed it would continue to dominate the political debate in Washington and force many of the president's fellow Republicans to choose whether to stand by him, break with him, or, in the case of most, find a way to keep out of the discussion. The president linked the clash with Mr. Cummings to his earlier demand that four Democratic congresswomen of color go back to their home countries, and he cast it in electoral terms. Well, no, that's not what he did. He did not hearken back to the go back to the home countries tweet. He just said if the Democrats are going to defend the squad and Baltimore, it's going to be a long road to 2020. That part is true. Now, what Trump is neglecting to mention is that while a lot of members of his base are sort of cheering this sort of thing on, He does have to win some suburban women. That would be a useful thing. And you know what suburban women find off-putting? The president lashing out in every direction like a caged hyena. It's not a good look for the president of the United States. So, well, what he says about Baltimore is true. And what he says about Al Sharpton is 100% every sort of way true. Is it good politics? Is it smart politics? I don't think so particularly. Now, I guess that what Trump is going for here is that it's a year and a half out from the election. And hopefully by the time of the election, things will have died down. But the quotes will remain forever because all the Democrats came out to defend Al Sharpton. All of them, universally. So you had Kamala Harris defending Al Sharpton. And she tweeted out, The Reverend Al has spent his life fighting for what's right and working to improve our nation, even in the face of hate. It's shameful yet unsurprising that Trump would continue to attack those who have done so much for our country. Al Sharpton has done zero things for our country. He has done an incredible number of horrible things for our country. Al Sharpton is a blot on our republic in terms of politics. He is just the worst. This is a man who is involved in inciting a pogrom, not once but twice, once at Freddy's Fashion Mart and once in Crown Heights. We'll go through all of it. This is a man who has injected himself into every race debate in the United States for the past several decades, never to the positive. This is a man who, who created one of the worst rape hoaxes hoaxes in modern American history and slandered a prosecutor as a rapist for no reason other than his own self-aggrandizement, a man who has earned his living by shaking down company after company on the basis of false accusations of racism. And yet every Democrat is out of the woodwork defending this guy. So I guess if the strategy here is that we'll get to use these quotes next year in the election, then maybe it's a strategy. Or it could just be that Trump is a creature of instinct and he says whatever he feels is on his mind at the time. Because here's the problem. If this were all strategy, then you would imagine that a year from now, as the election approaches, Trump would quiet it down. Do you really think Trump is going to stop this stuff before the election? 
Or do you think that he's just going to continue to ratchet it up and alienate a lot of suburban women? As I've been saying for this entire election cycle, if Trump shuts up, if we duct tape him, if President Trump duct tapes himself and goes down into the basement of the White House and watches Shark Week and Stormy Daniels pornography until the election, the dude will be president forever. If he continues to talk, he will remind people that he exists. And that's a problem because what 2016 shows is that if it's a referendum on Democrats, Democrats lose. What 2020, what 2018 showed is if it's a, refer- a referendum on Trump and Republicans, Republicans lose. So Trump's job now is to make this a referendum on Democrats, which requires two things. Democrats to be crazy, check, and Donald Trump to not be the center of attention, giant fail. Anyway, the Democrats come out in full force for Al Sharpton. Elizabeth Warren tweets out, the Reverend Al has dedicated his life to the fight for justice for all. This is so sickening. It's so sickening. Al Sharpton is an unrepentant anti-Semite. Al Sharpton is a racist, a real racist. Okay, I have proof of this. Al Sharpton is one of the worst public actors of our lifetime. Most black folks in America do not see Al Sharpton as a true racial leader. They may see attacks on Sharpton as racially motivated because the media have taught everybody in the country, black, white, and green, that any attack on somebody who is quote unquote a black leader, even if that black leader is a bad person like Al Sharpton, must be racially based. It can't be based on the fact that Al Sharpton is a garbage human. Nonetheless, I don't think most black people in America, when they look for leadership, look to Al Sharpton. He's a media-appointed and self-appointed arbiter of race in the United States. And here are all the Democrats coming out to tout him. Specifically, we know why this is happening, right? This is happening for two reasons. One, to attack Trump. Two, because Elizabeth Warren thinks she's going to carve into the black vote by touting Al Sharpton. She tweets out, the Reverend Al has dedicated his life to the fight for justice for all, except for Stephen Pagones, who he accused of rape falsely. And then had his company pay up the settlement, not him personally. She says, no amount of racist tweets from the man in the White House will erase that, and we must not let them divide us. I stand with my friend, Al Sharpton, in calling out these ongoing attacks on people of color. That's Elizabeth Warren. And then Joe Biden got into the act. So Joe Biden should know better, but of course he doesn't, because Joe Biden, for all the talk about Joe Biden being moderate, not really all that moderate. He's moderate when you look at the other Democrats, which is like saying that Trotsky was moderate compared to Lenin. Joe Biden says the Reverend Al is a champion in the fight for civil rights. The fact that President Trump continues to use the power of the presidency to unleash racist attacks on the people he serves is despicable. This hate has no place in our country. It's beneath the dignity of the office. Kind of ironic for all these Democrats to be talking about the evils of hate while touting Al Sharpton. Well, Sharpton himself responded. He went on to and Sharpton could not be happier about this. Right. I mean, this is Sharpton's thing. What Sharpton is looking for is the spotlight. Trump just gave it to him. Basically, we all now live in New York City circa 1991. It's Donnie from the Queens versus Al Sharpton. That is what our politics has become. In one second, we're going to get to Al Sharpton's response to President Trump. And then I want to go through Sharpton's record, just so you know who the Democrats are defending today. First, these days, a lot of workplaces offer employees some pretty nice perks. So, for example, we only chain up our employees six hours a day. We let them wander around in the yard on their own for at least 20 minutes a day. And also, we feed them gruel. So there are lots of perks here at the Daily Wire offices. But for some companies, they offer people life insurance. Well, you might not actually be at one of those companies. You may actually need life insurance. Like, say you work at the Daily Wire, and we chain you up six hours a day. It may lower your life expectancy, and you're thinking to yourself, I need some life insurance. Well, that's why you should head over to PolicyGenius.com. PolicyGenius is the easy way to shop for life insurance online. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers and find the right amount of coverage at the best possible price. If you have workplace life insurance, the Policy Genius team can even review that policy and let you know what additional coverage you might need. So even if you got life insurance through your programs, well, maybe you need more life insurance because, hell, your life is worth more than those five bucks your employer was willing to pay for. So remember, 
Workplace life insurance policies are like workplace snacks. Better than nothing, but not quite enough. Head on over to PolicyGenius.com today. Find out how to supplement your workplace life insurance and better protect your family. Policy Genius. it's like a buffet made of life insurance, which is important. May not be all that filling to your stomach, but it is really good for you. What could be more delicious than that besides cake? Well, I mean, also, mostly just useful. I mean, you like you need life insurance. Go to PolicyGenius.com, right? Just do it. Be a responsible adult. PolicyGenius.com. Okay, so Al Sharpton comes out in defense of himself because that's what Al Sharpton does best. And he says, I am, I'm, a, I'm a, a warrior, a warrior for truth, a warrior. Here he is. We've got to change our target where we start challenging the Republicans, particularly those up for Senate races this year, that you are going to stand up and really deal with the head of your party, Donald Trump, or you're the one that's going to suffer the consequences. And and make him look to his own base inconsistent, but use that to go after the senators and the Republican leadership that have laryngitis while he's peddling racism and dividing this country. We favorite must here, my favorite thing here is that Al Sharpton keeps tweeting out pictures of himself with Trump. And Trump keeps saying I'm like best friends with Sharpton and we hate each other. It's hilarious. It's hilarious because they did. They walked in the same circles in New York City. Al Sharpton tweeted out, he put out on Instagram, actually, a photo of himself. He said, this is a 2006 photo of Donald Trump at the National Action Network convention in New York. In the photo, he's telling the godfather of soul, James Brown, and Reverend Jesse Jackson, why despite the fact I marched on him throughout the years, he respected my work. Now I'm a con man and troublemaker. That's why he came to my events. You're right, Mr. President. I'm going to keep making good trouble against racism and people like you that normalize it. But you're like in a photo with him. You had him at your event. So on the one hand, you have Trump going, Al Sharpton's the worst. Also, we used to hang out together all the time. And on the other hand, you have Al Sharpton going, Donald Trump is a racist and brutal. And also, we used to hang out together all the time. What in the world? Also, I I will note here that Joe Scarborough sponsored a resolution condemning Al Sharpton back in the 1990s for exactly the race baiter and con man he is. Now, Joe Scarborough touts that they are friends. What has changed about Al Sharpton? The answer is absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing has changed about Al Sharpton. Nonetheless, you have Sharpton on the rampage saying, what Trump is doing here would make George Wallace blush. Really? Really? We've heard the George Wallace comparison a lot with regard to President Trump. I don't like a lot of President Trump's racial language. I've condemned it when he says something that I think is bad. But George Wallace, maybe you should spare the comparisons of a president to George Wallace for the people who stand in school, school door houses, right? The, the schoolhouse doors, the doorways blocking it and say segregation now, segregation today, segregation forever. Maybe you should save the comparisons to people who are like forcibly in favor of state-sponsored segregation, not for a dude who mouths off as though he's a talk radio caller. Maybe that. But Al Sharpton says, no, no, he's just like George Wallace. It's a consistent pattern and a deliberate political strategy that would make George Wallace blush what this president is doing. I remember as a kid, I had just become youth director of Operation Breadbasket in New York. George Wallace ran in 68. George Wallace didn't do some of the things that that in the campaign. George Wallace was a terrible guy, stood in the door at the University of Alabama. But in the campaign, he tried to dress it up more than what we're seeing this president. Well, you know, Kevin Cruz. No, he really did not, actually. He is a George Wallace. Again, segregation yesterday, segregation today, segregation forever. No. And as far as people who are racially divisive, I'm sorry, Donald Trump does not come close to Al Sharpton. He does not. Now, let's go through Al Sharpton's record, since he is apparently a person of justice and wonder, according to MSNBC and NBC News. Apparently, he is a person who has fought for justice for all, according to Elizabeth Warren. He's a person who is a good friend of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Okay, 
Al Sharpton is one of the most despicable people in American public life and has been for years. I used to run an organization called Truth Revolt. It was specifically designed as a counter to Media Matters. So Media Matters is a horrible left-wing organization. And all they do is they spend their days listening to conservative shows and then trying to drive boycotts against advertisers on conservative shows. Even if those advertisers don't endorse the message, they just want access to the audience and the advertisers advertise on a range of products. That's what Media Matters does. So we decided that we were going to launch a, a counter to Media Matters called Truth Revolt. And we were going to go after advertisers on the left and teach the left that this tactic can be used on both sides. We called it mutually assured destruction. We said openly, we don't like the strategy, but we'll do it if you guys keep doing this routine. The first person we targeted was Al Sharpton. Why? Because Al Sharpton is the worst. And it is inexcusable, inexcusable that MSNBC found it necessary to put him on the air. Now, they can do it. They're a private company. And my general perspective is if you actually don't like Al Sharpton, don't watch his show. And I'm not really going after advertisers other than to prove to the left that this thing can be done on either side. I said so at the time. With that said, Al Sharpton is the worst. He's the worst. Okay, so according to Stuart Stevens over at the Daily Beast, this is circa 2017, he goes through what Al Sharpton has done. Quote, the Tawana Browley case that captivated New York in the late 80s is a shocking reminder of the toxic mix racial exploitation and personal ambition can produce. The New York Times and Retro Report have just released a new 15-minute documentary on the despicable host, a hoax, which should be required viewing for NBC News executives who are heavily invested in rehabbing a key culprit of this loathsome episode, the Reverend Al Sharpton. Bradley was 15 years old in 1987 when she was found in her hometown of Wappinger Falls, New York, with KKK and the N-word written on her stomach, her jeans burnt in the crotch, feces in her hair, and her tennis shoes sliced open. She said she'd been abducted and raped by a group of white men. A trio of increasingly prominent and radical New York City black activists represented her and her family, attorneys Alton Maddox and C. Vernon Mason and Reverend Al Sharpton. Bradley told them a cop had been one of her attackers. Sharpton named that officer as Harry Chris Jr., a police officer from a nearby town who had committed suicide shortly after Bradley was found. Sharpton also named a local prosecutor, Stephen Pagones, as one of the attackers, offering no proof, none. none. Bradley and her, her advisors refused to cooperate in any way with the prosecution and its team. Sharpton says that was the decision of the lawyers. When asked why Bradley's team would not meet with New York State Attorney General Robert Abrams, Sharpton said it would be, quote, like asking someone who watched someone killed in the gas chamber to sit down with Mr. Hitler. Sharpton later accused Ryan, who is the veteran prosecutor, Jack Ryan, of kicking a blind man in a scuffle with demonstrators. Ryan was nowhere near the scene. After a six-month investigation, a grand jury found the entire episode had been a hoax. Bradley had defaced herself to avoid the wrath of her stepfather after staying out late to visit a boyfriend. Sharpton was found guilty of defamation in a lawsuit brought by prosecutor Stephen Pagonis. Okay, let me let me give you a clip of just who Al Sharpton was at the time. This is from Morton Downey Jr.'s show. And this is Morton Downey Jr. on Morton Downey Jr.'s show. This is Al Sharpton screaming at a member of the audience that that person is a punk F-word, and the F-word is a is a slur for gay people. Okay, this is a quote this is, again, 1987. Now, come on, do something. Okay, I mean, that was Al Sharpton. And not much has changed about Al Sharpton, except that he's gotten a little bit more subtle. He said of Assistant District Attorney Pagonas, quote, we stated openly Stephen Pagonas did it. If we're lying, sue us. So we can go into court with you and prove you did. Sue us, sue us right now. And, uh, and then Pagonas sued him and he lost. Okay, that was just the beginning. Al Sharpton also had an active role in the Crown Heights riots of 1991. On August 19, 1991, a tragic accident left seven-year-old Gavin Cato dead, this is according to Truth Revolt, searching for an outlet. Many in the community placed the blame for the death of the young African-American child on the Jewish driver of the car 
and the Jewish emergency responders who failed to revive the child. Some discontented members of the neighborhood proceeded to exploit the situation by encouraging violence culminating in deadly riots that led to the death of Jewish community member Yankel Rosenbaum, who was repeatedly stabbed in the back and beaten by a group of young black men shouting, kill the Jew. As the riots continued, Sharpton yelled, quote, if the Jews want to get it on, tell them to pin their yarmulkes back and come on over to my house. A few days after the death of Rosenbaum at a eulogy of K- at Cato's funeral, and these riots continued for days, they're rolling riots. He said, quote, all we want is to say what Jesus said. If you offend one of these little ones, you got to pay for it. No compromise, no meetings, no coffee clatch, no skin and ingrid. And one banner at the rally read, quote, Hitler did not do the job. This is this is who Al Sharpton is. This is who Al Sharpton was. And didn't stop there. Al Sharpton at Freddy's Fashion Mart railed against, quote unquote, white interlopers. What happened there? Well, there was a, a chain, uh, a little strip mall that was owned by a black church. The black church rented it out to a Jewish guy. The Jewish guy sublet it to a, to a store and then raised the rents after the church raised the rents on him. Al Sharpton descended on this, uh, on this store, Freddy's Fashion Mart. And he declared that white interlopers were trying to take over the property, even though the property was actually owned by a black church. And all of that ended with a crazy person trying to burn down the place and killing several people. Okay, that is, he's just, he's garbage, okay? He's been garbage his entire, uh, his entire career. He has not once actually made America a better place. Not once. That's who Al Sharpton is. That's who Al Sharpton was. And what's amazing is how Al Sharpton was brought back into the fold. So for a long time, Al Sharpton was out of the public eye. Now, this is why I say when people say that President Trump has racially polarized the country, President Trump has not calmed racial tensions in the country. That is for sure. His commentary is not helpful. But if you want to talk about rising racial polarization in America, Barack Obama was responsible for a lot of it. He absolutely was. Barack Obama came into office on a wave of enthusiasm for the idea that he and his very personage was going to help bridge gaps between black and white, that he was going to help, he was going to help conciliate the conflict over race that has rift our country for hundreds of years. I mean, that was his promise, right? We're not black, we're not white, we're the United States. We're not red states, we're not blue states. That was his routine. And then he came into office, and one of the first things that he did, presumably in order to buy a certain level of legitimacy with certain activists, is he brought into the fold people like Al Sharpton. This is from the Wall Street Journal, circa 2010. Quote, Obama's new partner, Al Sharpton, Peter Walston writing, with his wavy bouffant and medallion necklaces, the Reverend Al Sharpton famously confronted government officials on behalf of black Americans. Now he has found a new role, telling black leaders to quiet their criticisms and give the government a chance. President Barack Obama has turned to Sharpton in recent weeks to answer increasingly public criticism in the black community over his economic policy. Some black leaders are charging that the nation's first African-American president has failed to help black communities hit hard by the downturn leaving party strategists worried that black Democrats will become dispirited and skip November's congressional elections. Sharpton has emerged as an important part of the White House response. On his national radio program, he is directly rebutting the president's critics, arguing that Mr. Obama is right to craft policies aimed at lifting all Americans rather than specifically targeting blacks. One recent on-air fight with Tavis Smiley, a prominent talk show host and Obama critic, grew so heated it has created a small sensation among black leaders. Sharpton told Smiley, quote, the president does not need to get out there and do what we should be doing. He argued that expecting Obama to become, quote, a black exponent of black views was just stupid because it would create fodder for conservatives looking to defeat legislation that could ultimately help blacks. 
Sharpton said it was a double standard for Tavis Smiley and other critics to expect more from a black president than they would demand of a Democratic white president. The Wall Street Journal reported at the time, 2010, Mr. Sharpton is an unlikely White House partner given his racially polarizing history and efforts by Mr. Obama's 2008 campaign team to steer clear of the civil rights leader. But Sharpton could help ensure that blacks remain energized for November's election, an important task in a year that finds the Democratic base to be less enthusiastic about voting than our Republicans. Sharpton had been to the White House five times since Obama took office. Sharpton's radio program has become a friendly place for administration officials to address black leaders. Obama wooed Sharpton. He made Sharpton prominent again. And then Sharpton was given a show on MSNBC. Okay, that was Obama picking out a racially polarizing, not just racially polarizing, a race-baiting garbage human like Al Sharpton and revitalizing his career and making him an important person again, a person that Pete Buttigieg has to visit in order to get the blessing of the woke Pope over here. Right? He, has to, he has to go get the blessing of a guy who, again, does not represent the black community. Al Sharpton does not represent the black community. Jesse Jackson does not represent the black community. In fact, I think it's fair to say no one represents the black community because when it comes to the black community, everyone there is an individual, just like nobody represents the quote-unquote white community or the Hispanic community. When people say that Al Sharpton is a black leader, all I can say is show me the size of his, his support base. I, I'm not seeing it. Yeah, but it was Obama who decided to bring Sharpton back into the fold and make him a thing again. Randall Kennedy, professor at Harvard Law School, who is black. I know Professor Kennedy. I took one of his classes when I was at Harvard Law School. And he and I disagree about nearly everything, but he is a reasonable human being. He wrote a piece in September 2011 for the New Republic called The Sharpton Renaissance, How the Reverend's Reputation Got Refurbished. Quote, there was a time not long ago when the dominant arbiters of public opinion relegated Al Sharpton to the outskirts of serious, respectable discussion. Sure, he was a fixture on the Ebony magazine list of the top 100 black Americans. Sure, journalists called him when they needed a provocative quip. Sure, Democratic Party politicians courted him. But the Rev was unmistakably relegated to the black ghetto of celebrity, journal, uh, celebrity activism. No one thought to ask his opinion regarding issues other than those perceived as directly pertinent to aggrieved blacks. The deference accorded by establishment bigwigs stemmed more from fear of his ability to cause them trouble than respect for his skill at envisioning positive initiatives. Among white opinion leaders, he was widely seen as the very embodiment of a race hustler, a living version of Reverend Bacon, the demagogue that Tom Wolfe concocted in his novel Bonfire of the Vanities. There was, alas, a basis for this negative impression. But now, says Randall Kennedy, Sharpton has risen above the confines of a strictly racial niche and emerged as a person of far-flung and real influence. His prominence in the American mainstream, from his appearances on the Sunday morning news network programs to a favorable profile on 60 Minutes, a laudatory cover in Newsweek, and now his own primetime show on MSNBC, is partly by dint of ambition, persistence, skill, and an apparent immunity to embarrassment. But it is also due in no small part to the sponsorship of President Obama. And this is what happened here. Obama was alienating Jesse Jackson, and he needed Al Sharpton to close that gap. That's one of the things that happened in 2008. Jackson didn't like Obama. Obama went to Sharpton. Since Obama's victory, says Randall Kennedy circa 2011, Sharpton has not only been an unequivocal cheerleader, he's been a vocal critic of blacks on the left who complain about Obama's priorities, appointments, and methods. Sharpton has acidly and repeatedly rebuked, for example, Cornell West, one of the president's most esteemed African-American detractors. In that way, Sharpton performs the valuable service to Obama of validating his racial bona fides. When West, Tavis Smiley, and Maxine Waters, among others, draw into question Obama's commitment to black folk, Sharpton is on hand to refute them. The president has rewarded Sharpton handsomely for his services. When seeking to display attentiveness to black concerns, he includes Sharpton among the leaders he purportedly consults. 
He has invited Sharpton to the White House for numerous events, including his birthday bash. The president's patronage has, has played a key role in the renaissance of Sharpton's public image. So as we say, when it comes to racial polarization in the United States, the media didn't take any notice of this. Randall Kennedy did. The Wall Street Journal did at the time. But it was Obama who restored one of the great race-baiting grifters in American history to a point of central contention. And now, apparently, it is a point of hot controversy to criticize Al Sharpton and point out exactly what Al Sharpton is. If Democrats want this, this is what Democrats bought. You want to know why racial polarization has been growing in this country? It didn't start with Trump, and it ain't going to end with Trump so long as the media continue to rehabilitate pieces of crap like Al Sharpton. Okay, we'll get to more of this in just one second. Democrats defending anything Trump opposes. First, let's talk about how you can actually get food more easily. So right now, my kitchen is under construction. That means we are ordering out an awful lot. And, you know, I got two little kids. I can't really at night, throw them in the car all the time and take them to a restaurant, very often the best thing for me to do is call DoorDash. DoorDash connects you to your favorite restaurants in your city. Ordering is really easy. You just use the DoorDash app and you choose what you want to eat and a dasher will bring it to you anywhere you are. Not only is the burger place you love on DoorDash already, over 310,000 other amazing restaurants are too. DoorDash connects you with door-to-door delivery in over 3,300 cities, all 50 states in Canada. Order from your local go-tos, choose from your favorite chains like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, Cheesecake Factory, you know, pretty much all the restaurants you want are going to be on DoorDash. So stop worrying about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners get an awesome deal. Five bucks off your first order of 15 bucks or more when you download the DoorDash app and use promo code BEN. Remember to use that promo code BEN. That's five bucks off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code BEN. Again, that is promo code BEN for five bucks off your first order from DoorDash. Go check them out right now. I'm relying on them heavily. I promise. Everything, it's, it's really, they make your life a lot easier, is what I'm saying to you. You get that great, that great deal again. Five bucks off your first order from DoorDash when you spend 15 bucks. Download that DoorDash app. Use promo code Ben. Okay, we'll get to more of the media defending everything in the world that President Trump attacks in just one second. First, quick reminder, next month we're taking our backstage show on the road for a special one-night-only event. That's August 21st at the beautiful Terrace Theater in Long Beach, California. Me, Daily Wire, God King, Jeremy Boring, Andrew Clavin, the execrable Michael Knowles. We'll all be there live. We'll be talking politics, pop culture. We'll be answering your questions from the audience. Tickets are on sale right this very instant at dailywire.com slash backstage, including our limited VIP packages that guarantee premium seating, photos, meet and greets with each of us, a gift from me. I'm shopping for it. This I, I keep promising it, but I keep forgetting and more. So head on over to dailywire.com slash backstage. Get your tickets today. I will see you there. Also, please subscribe over at dailywire.com, as we mentioned earlier on the show. Media Matters and nasty left groups like that are looking constantly to knock us off the air, attack our advertisers, go after us. And one of the ways you can keep us on the air and make sure that we can continue to bring you the truth is by subscribing and becoming part of the team. When you spend 99 bucks a year, you get the annual subscription, which comes complete with this. The very greatest in all beverage vessels. Look at that. The leftist tiers, hot or cold tumbler. Magnificent. Go check it out right now. I promise you will enjoy it. We are the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. <laughs> Okay, so as I say, the Democrats will defend anything so long as President Trump attacks it. And that is why the Democrats have come to to see Rashida Tlaib and the rest of the squad as their allies, even though Rashida Tlaib is blatantly anti-Semitic, even though Rashida Tlaib is a terrible congressperson. (laughs) She has a piece in the Washington Post today called, called, While Trump Spews Hate, I Continue to Do My Job. Her job apparently involves helping to sponsor resolutions in favor of boycotting the state of Israel. That resolution, by the way, if it were carried into effect, it has no legal effect. If it were carried into effect, it would actually be illegal under federal law because federal contractors are not allowed to discriminate. BDS is discrimination. Therefore, 
if she were to legalize discrimination, it would be invalid anyway. She has a piece in the Washington Post today talking about what a victim she is because Trump has attacked her. It's so terrible. But she, she is standing up for the truth. And Democrats, of course, are rallying around the, the squad. They're rallying around anything that President Trump opposes. President Trump could come out against cancer. They would rally around it. He could come out against diabetes and they'd be like, you know what? Let's abolish insulin. It's time, man. Diabetes has to have its day. According to Rashida Tlaib, he said, the values I hold dear are not in line with those of my home state of Michigan. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are grounded in the values of equity, justice, respect for each other. I was elected to represent the city of Detroit and Wayne County. It's a remarkable time in our country's history when the president is hindering our desire for universal health care, lower prescription drug prices, equity in education, and stopping the for-profit schemes that hurt children and communities such as mine. With every hate-fueled tweet, he gets us off track as we try to hold him and his reckless administration accountable, yada, 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 yada. And of course, the Democrats continue to rally around now Al Sharpton and Rashida Tlaib and I guess the greatness of how Baltimore has been run. That's been pretty fantastic. So instead of actually instead of actually tackling what Trump is saying about Baltimore, for example, or explaining that President Trump doesn't have any solutions for Baltimore, he's just mouthing off, which is actually what happened there, or that the squad are too radical, which Nancy Pelosi was trying to say two weeks ago. Instead, the media have decided to rally around the Trump is a racist narrative because they're, they're really familiar with it. It's like an old standby. There are certain quarterbacks, you know they're going to call a run on a particular play because they're uncomfortable with the throw. Well, that is the Democrats at this point, and that is the media. They're uncomfortable with throwing the ball down the field, you know, risking it all on policy or on a rational conversation. Instead, they're just going to go with the run, which may gain them a couple of yards and a pile of dust. And the run is racism. So CNN's Don Lemon yesterday, he, he talked to a black pastor who met with President Trump. So Trump met with a bunch of pastors from the inner city. And Don Lemon said to this black pastor, is it godly how Trump attacks people of color? I'm, I definitely recall Don Lemon asking Barack Obama whether it was godly for the Reverend Al Sharpton to be visiting the White House after, you know, inciting a couple of riots, allegedly. Here is, here is Don Lemon, though, doing this routine. You know, I know it's hard for you. You think it's hard to believe that Trump is racist, but he's repeatedly used racially charged language. He consistently attacks black and brown elected leaders. He does not just attack black people. He attacks anybody, and you know it. As a man of faith, as a Christian, you're saying he attacks anyone. Um, it sounds like you're condoning attacks. Is that Christianly or, or godly? I'm just stating a statement of fact. I'm not condoning anything. I'm stating a statement of fact. President Trump does not pick the people he attacks because of color. He attacks anybody he feels needed. It's 100% true. But I love Don Lemon now doing this religious routine. Well, you know, you know. Isn't it, is it godly when he attacks people? I don't know. Was it godly when Barack Obama decided that he was going to slander the officers of Cambridge, Massachusetts? Was it godly when he welcomed Al Sharpton back into the good graces of American society after Al Sharpton had helped set, uh, set off racial conflagra- conflagrations on repeated occasions? Don't worry, guys. The media isn't biased. You, you want to know how the media isn't biased? Okay, so CNN had a panel yesterday talking about Baltimore. And someone pointed out, hey, didn't Bernie like rip Baltimore in 2015 and talked about how it was a third world country? And everyone agrees, no, that's totally different because that was Bernie, man. And Bernie's just a good guy, but Trump's a bad guy. So when Trump rips Baltimore, totally different. Senator, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jen, let me let me show you this tweet from President Trump. It says, crazy Bernie Sanders recently equated the city of Baltimore to a third world country. Based on that statement, I assume that Bernie must now be labeled a racist, just as a Republican would if he used that term in standard. But there is a difference. Of course. And look, I think... 
everybody should be focused on helping people in the inner city of Baltimore get the help they need. People would like more jobs. They'd like health care. They'd like all sorts of benefits that the government could certainly support. But there is a commonality and a pattern with President Trump here. And I think that's important context. Oh, you see, there, there's a difference. Now, we're not going to explain the difference. We're just going to say that there is a difference. And then everybody sort of just accepts it as rote. And there's a difference that when Trump says that Baltimore is a bad place and when Bernie Sanders says that Baltimore is a bad place, totally, totally different. They mean two totally different things. And this is all, of course, pushing a particular narrative. Trevor Noah, who, again, is in this running gun battle for unfunniest person in America. Occasionally, he's funny, so he is still running well behind Samantha Bee, who I think has his runaway. I mean, she's like the secretary of unfunniness on late night TV. But uh, Trevor Noah says, you don't have to be a genius to know what Trump means when he talks about Baltimore. Really spell it out for me, Trevor. This language is part of a pattern, right? President Trump always uses the word infestation when talking about people of color. Almost always uses it. He said illegal immigrants are infesting America. He said Congressman John Lewis's Atlanta district is crime infested and that the squad must go back to their crime infested countries. Like you don't need to be a genius to see what Trump is implying because he's not a subtle person. Okay, so um, here's the thing. As I said yesterday, he called New Hampshire drug infested. New Hampshire is whiter than any blank piece of paper you can find. It is, there are 1.1% of the population of New Hampshire is black. So when he said it was drug infested, was he talking about black people? Like, what, what did that mean? All of this is meant to drive the narrative. And the narrative is that black people are under threat. Democrats want to portray that narrative, despite the fact that we have record black unemployment, despite the fact that blacks in the last several election cycles have outpaced their percentage of the population in terms of the, of the voting population. What they want is for black people to feel under threat so that black people turn out and vote against President Trump, duplicating the Obama 2012 coalition rather than their turnout in 2008 alone. Charlemagne the God, he was one of the people on MSNBC pushing this. I mean, you want to talk about over the top? Here's over the top. Given what the president has done over the last two years, is that enough to get black voters motivated again to go out and vote for him in a big way? I mean, if they know what I know that they, they should, because, you know, if, 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 if America is in danger, like who you think is going to be impacted the most by whatever racist policies, you know, whatever policies that oppress, whatever policies that marginalize, like who's next to be in concentration camps in America? It's not going to be white people, I don't think. So if we if we if we know what's good for us, we will definitely go out there and vote. But I don't think it's anything wrong with making sure that the, the Democrats have a black agenda. Charlemagne the God says that th this is the narrative that folks are seeking to push. And why don't people trust the media? Because this narrative is not true. Okay, this narrative that President Trump is attacking Al Sharpton because Sharpton's black or attacking Baltimore because Baltimore is a largely black city. It's not true. Trump attacks anybody who annoys him. He does it all the time. I also don't believe the media because the media are basically willing to say anything about anybody. So, for example, the media have been pushing for now about a week this idea that, that Mitch McConnell, cocaine Mitch, is actually Moscow Mitch. He's actually working for the Russians. Why? Well, after the Mueller hearings, which were a giant dud for the Democrats. I mean, a giant fail for the Democrats. They immediately pretended that they were shocked to find that the Russians had been hacking the election, uh, had been involved in hacking during the election and that they were involved in trying to manipulate people during the election. And so then they took a bill that passed that, that passed with only one Republican vote in the House. And they tried to have it declared into law in the Senate by unanimous consent. And Republicans said, no, Mitch McConnell said no. Sorry, this was a controversial bill. It was a controversial, controversial bill because usually voting provisions in the United States are left to the states. We've already spent something like $340 billion on election security going into upcoming elections. That was passed by a Republican Senate. Okay, And Mitch McConnell, for holding up a bill 
that has a lot of specifics that are controversial, including the use of paper mandated paper ballots as backups, for example. There's also mandated particular uses of federal authority over state elections. Republicans generally have opposed this because how state elections are run is generally up to states, not up to the federal government. In any case, Mitch McConnell was called Moscow Mitch by Joe Scarborough, and then this became a thing, that he's actually attempting to shield, he's actually attempting to shield the Russians, that the Russians can continue interfering in our elections. Right now, trending on Twitter, is hashtag Moscow Mitch McTreason. It's just ridiculous. I'm sorry, it's ridiculous. Everybody knows this is ridiculous who has half a brain. Here's McConnell defending himself. Regardless of who is in the White House, regardless of which way the political winds were blowing, I have consistently treated Russia like the threat that it is. Even under a Republican administration, I spoke out when I was afraid the U.S. wasn't doing enough to stop the erosion of democracy and rule of law in Russia. So, Mr. President, I don't normally take the time to respond to critics in the media when they have no clue what they're talking about. But this modern-day McCarthyism is toxic and damaging because of the way it warps our entire public discourse. Okay, and that, of course, is exactly right. It is ridiculous. Do you really think that Mitch McConnell is a Russian tool or that Mitch McConnell is ignoring election security because of some fealty to Trump? It's ridiculous. Again, this bill only passed the House with one Republican vote. It was not really noticed because Democrats passed it and nobody assumed it was going anywhere. Democrats then presented it as though it was some sort of bipartisan achievement. And then, oh, look at that Mitch McConnell standing in the way, standing in the way of election progress. Running state elections is the responsibility of states and localities. This is true under the Constitution. And this has always been McConnell's position, which is why I can't, I can't find her. I've asked multiple Republican senators about this. Not one Republican senator opposes McConnell on this. Not one. Sorry, McConnell supported was $380 million, not billion, in aid to election security funding that passed Congress just a few months ago. He supported the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee investigation into election interference that produced an alarming public report last week. This is exactly like when Democrats claim there's a crisis and then they pass and then they propose like a trillion dollar bill that doesn't solve the crisis. Republicans oppose it. And then Democrats say that Republicans refuse to acknowledge the crisis. It's exactly the the same sort of idiotic virtue signaling you see with the Green New Deal. Climate change. We're all going to die in 10 years. And if you don't pass this meaningless bill and vote for it, you're a bad person. Then it comes up for a vote. Not a single Democrat votes for it. But the media have been touting this. The media have been touting this Moscow Mitch nonsense, pretending that it's real. It is not real. It never was real. And yet they suggest that we are supposed to apparently respect their take on it somehow. Yeah, I have my doubts. And meanwhile, going into the debates tonight, first first round of the second debates. It's hard to figure out how to term these things because now there are 83 different rounds of debates. But it's the first round of the second debates tonight. And it features Elizabeth Warren and Beto and Bernie Sanders. And, B- and Beto. <laughs> Who else is on it? Buttigieg? Buttigieg is in it too. Okay, so it's the all-white people debate. The only question about the debate tonight is whether Bernie Sanders is able to defend himself against Elizabeth Warren. Warren has been making slow but steady gains. The only way that one of them becomes a challenger to Biden is if one of them loses. This is Highlander now. Only one can, only one can reign. So we will see if there is any sort of conflict. Because here's the fact. According to new polls, Joe Biden has restored his lead. So it seemed after the last debate that he was starting to sink. And then Joe Biden went back to his original strategy, which, which was disappear and let the other Democrats act like idiots. And he started to gain in the polls again. According to a new Emerson poll, he's back on top at 33%, 13 points ahead of Bernie Sanders, who's at 
Warren at 14%. Sanders has gained five points since Emerson's last survey. Kamala Harris has fallen four points, which there was a, a reversion to the mean for Kamala Harris. She had a big bump and then she started to drop again. She was not able to build on that momentum because she is mechanical. Nate Silver yesterday, the pollster, compared her to Mitt Romney. And that, I think, is kind of fair. Like she sort of checks a lot of boxes for Democrats, but she doesn't enthuse anyone. The only other candidates above 3% were Mayor Pete Buttigieg at 6% and Beto at 4 Again, I am astonished by the amount of media attention Buttigieg has gotten to receive 6% in these polls. Buttigieg does not have, apparently, any breakaway quality that has allowed him to climb. He sort of reached his high point a couple months ago, and it's been, again, reversion to the mean ever since. Morning Consult also has a survey today that shows Biden at the top with 33%. Sanders is again second in this survey, so that's a bit consistent, with 18%, and Warren at 13, and Harris at 12. So Sanders is showing a little bit more durability than I thought he would at this point. I thought he was going to slide into oblivion. We'll see tonight if Elizabeth Warren is able to put the hit on him and knock him down a couple of pegs. That's what she needs to do, because both Warren and Sanders are not going to survive to final round. It will be one or the other. Okay, time for some things I like, and then a quick thing that I hate. Okay, things that I like. So You want to talk about climate change? Let's talk about climate change. So a lot of folks on the left are very focused in on climate change as a key and important issue. I'm not averse to discussing climate change as a key and important issue if we do so in a rational way. What I'm not going to do is humor the idea that the world will be on fire by 2100, that all of the coasts will be underwater, that we are all going to die by 2100 if we don't do anything to stop climate change in the next 12 years. I do not buy it. I think that there are mitigation efforts that can be made. I think there are things like geoengineering that can be done. I think that there has been talk And there should be more talk of deregulation of the nuclear power industry, which is one of the easiest ways of producing energy at cost-effective method without increasing carbon emissions. But in order to assess the actual damage, you have to go about it in a rational way. So there's a great book out by William Nordhaus from 2013. It's called The Climate Casino, talking about the risks of climate change and trying to assess what those risks are. Because very often what you hear from the left is this definitive, here's exactly what's going to happen. And the answer is, you don't know. Now, it is quite possible that something bad is going to happen in the future. There are tipping points in the environment, as William Nordhaus, Nobel Prize winner in economics last year, talks about. There are tipping points, and we're not sure where the tipping points are, where, for example, the ice caps start to melt a lot faster than they were if you reach a certain level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. There's talk about a certain level of ocean acidification that is unable to be recovered from, or sea level rises over the course of the next 500 years. So you have to sort of, number one, determine time frame. Number two, you have to determine what exactly the modeling shows about the time frame. So there are models that show that by 2100, there'll be warming of about two degrees Celsius, which is about six degrees Fahrenheit. Let's see, yeah, about four degrees Fahrenheit, rather. Or it could be all the way up to six degrees Celsius. Uh, sorry, it could, yes, it could be up to six degrees Celsius, which of course would be the upper end modeling. It's pretty unlikely that happens, but it is possible. The best kind of, Average scenario is three degrees Celsius by the end of the century, which would mean six degrees Fahrenheit, which would be a problem. But it would not mean that ocean levels rise by 30 or 40 feet, as people keep saying, right? This book does a good job of breaking down what exactly are the rewards and the risks over time. He suggests a carbon tax as a possibility. I think it's going to be very difficult to implement a carbon tax on a global scale, which is what you would need in order to actually affect climate change in any real way. Otherwise, what you get is a serious free rider problem where the United States imposes a carbon tax like Europe has and then starts importing oil from other places. And also China and India just keep producing carbon emissions to an extraordinary extent. The fact is that, as Nordhaus points out, also 
whatever future problems we're going to deal with, we're also going to be dealing with an economy that is completely different by 2100. The centers of power are going to shift in the, in the world economy. Back in, two, back in 1900, would anyone have predicted that China was going to be a world economic power or that Russia was going to have faded into obliv- oblivion? Like, you can't predict what's going to happen in the economy. This book does a good job of trying to reasonably lay out the case for what exactly is happening with climate change, what the economic costs are going to be of climate change, how we assess those, what we should do about it, what we can do about it. As I've said, I think there needs to be talk about geoengineering. I think there needs to be talk about building seawalls and mitigation. I think that there should be talk about international agreements, but those international agreements have to have teeth. And if those international agreements are not reachable, then destroying the United States economy so that China and India can catch up with us and free ride off of our own willingness to cripple our economy seems like a very, very bad idea. This is why when people say there are easy solutions to climate change, the answer is, yes, if you could wave a magic wand, I'm sure there would be. But in a world populated by real governments and real people, not so much. The Paris Climate Accords were a complete waste of time, mainly because nobody was abiding by the Paris Climate Accords. The number one reduction in carbon emissions by country has happened in the United States since the Paris Climate Accord and since the pullout from the Paris Climate Accord by President Trump. So that international agreement didn't mean anything. China signed it and then kept admitting like nobody's business. So again, I think the book is is well worth reading. The Climate Casino, Risk, Uncertainty, and Economics for a Warming World by William Nordhaus. An actual reasonable take on the issue as opposed to the climate uh, catastrophic thinking you see so often. Okay, time for a quick thing that I hate. Okay, so Ted Cruz was at LAX. And there is this new thing on the left where if you are... If you see a Republican in public, you're supposed to berate this Republican in public. This gives you some sort of virtue signaling point. It is stupid and irritating. It makes the country a worse place. If you want to go to his office and protest, do it. If you want to sponsor some sort of rally outside the Capitol building, do it. If you want to harass public officials in a public place simply because they happen to be standing around in an airport, this makes you a jackass. I wouldn't do this to any Democrat. I don't think many Republicans would, frankly. And if they did, I think it would be a nasty thing. If you're not asking him a legitimate question, if you're not a journalist who's trying to get an answer, for example, if you're just there to bother him and yell at him, then this makes you a bad person. And it makes the country a worse place because we at least have to have common spaces that we can share. If I have to bring security with me every time I go to the airport because I'm afraid somebody's going to punch me in the face, that doesn't make for a better country. And if I'm there with my wife and kids in a public place and you're accosting me to scream at me, this fairly definitionally makes you a bad person. And here's a little bit of the tape. These people who are standing there shouting at Ted Cruz, Americans will not be silent. And there's a bunch of them. Then it turns into like a quick social media mob, everybody bringing their cameras. Woo, look at us, look at our courage. Americans, no one's silencing you. You're standing there screaming in the middle of an airport like a jackass. There's Ted Cruz being very polite because this is what Ted does in public. You know, the fact that none of these people wanted to have a conversation or a discussion, they just wanted to yell at Ted Cruz, demonstrates this is all virtue signaling garbage. Want to make the country a worse place? This is a pretty good way of doing it. All right, we will be back here later today with two additional hours of content. Otherwise, we'll see you here tomorrow to recap those Democratic debates. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Directed by Mike Joyner. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. 
and our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Hey everyone, it's Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. Politics corrupts, but identity politics corrupts absolutely. Trump has broken through that evil racist system. Not politely, I admit, more like the incredible Hulk walking through a wall. The question is, now that the wall is down, will the rest of us have the courage to run free? We'll talk about it on The Andrew Claven Show. I'm Andrew Claven. This show is brought to you by HelixSleep.com. Sleep is absolutely critical, especially as you get older. But no two people sleep alike. That's why Helix offers several different mattress models, each designed for specific sleep positions and preferences. Go to helixsleep.com slash dailywire and take their sleep quiz to find a mattress made for you. Whether you're a side sleeper, a stomach sleeper, a hot sleeper, or a cold sleeper, Helix has you covered. I took the Helix sleep quiz and was matched with a Helix midnight mattress because I want a medium firmness and a sleep on my side. So far, my new mattress is a godsend. Don't want to take my word for it, Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It's even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Take the quiz and order the perfect mattress right to your door, shipped for free. It's so quick and fun to unbox, you won't believe how well you sleep. All Helix mattresses come with a 100-night trial and a 10- or 15-year warranty. Helix even offers financing options and flexible payment plans. A great night's sleep is just a few clicks away. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash dailywire and use code helixpartner20. That's helixsleep.com slash dailywire, code helixpartner20.